Welcome to the Sunday Message Podcast of Bethany Church in Fresno, California. We hope this message will encourage and equip you as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If today's message helps you, share it with a friend. If you would like to know more about the ministry of Bethany Church, please reach out on Facebook or at BethanyChurchFresno.com. And now, here's this week's message. We're going to be uh, finishing our message series today in, uh, in our summer series that we've called Lessons from the Trail. As we've looked at sort of this idea of what it would mean to be out on a hiking path and, and the kind of life lessons that you encounter along the way. I, I'll confess, it may sound like I'm this like hardcore series backpacker. I'm not. I'm kind of a comfort guy. Like I like going on day hikes. I don't care how challenging it is. But at the end of the day, I like going home to my own bed. And, and that's it. So occasionally I've done overnighters. Uh, but I have a level of comfort that, you know... I maybe should be embarrassed about, but I'm not. That's just how it is. Now, I've tried to show you some pictures of different things. Last week we talked about selfies and different things we've talked about along the way. One thing I don't have any pictures of are the times we've been able to stop and help other people along the way. Because it seems a little insensitive to say, oh, wow, you're having a bad go of it. Let me just take a picture first. And I might need this for a sermon illustration down the road. Um, no, I, I don't do that. So most of us, if, if those of us who like to get out on the trails, you want to go. I heard a great story about Julie, about you, and 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 taking, uh, like, the hike ended up being much, much longer than you anticipated. And so you had to just, like, hoof it and hustle and get all the way to the end. You have a deadline very often. You want to get back by a certain time. You want to get to your destination before sunset, whatever it is. So you want to keep moving. But occasionally, you'll encounter somebody who needs some help along the trail. I've encountered dehydrated hikers. I've encountered someone who's, you know, turned an ankle. Um, sometimes, this is my favorite one in a very twisted sort of way, sometimes you'll encounter a family who set out somewhat ambitiously and their little ones are like, done. And like, the parents are like, come on, we can keep going. And you're thinking, those kids ain't going to make it. They're in trouble. And, uh, you know, they've got to carry their kids or whatever. Or Stuart and I were on a hike, and everybody in the family was just beat red, flushed. And I thought, man, they're half an hour into their hike. They're, they're doomed, right? So you do what you can to help. You give some water. You give some encouragement. You tell them, oh, it's not that much farther. farther. You know, you know it's another two hours. You say 30, 40 minutes tops. Whatever it takes to motivate them to keep going. Uh, uh, not really. I'm, I'm kidding on that one. But the point is... You know, you're, you have opportunities to help people along the way, and you want to take that opportunity to do so when you can. Well, today's passage from Luke's Gospel is a well-known, beloved passage, so well-known, in fact, that the language of this is heard in our common law and our, our kind of common vernacular. Um, you'll read a news headline, for example, that says, you know, Good Samaritan helps stranded motorist, or, or sometimes it's very dark. Good Samaritan, you know, attacked while helping stranded motorist. But, you know, uh, hardly anyone reading that headline knows what a Samaritan is, but they know what a good Samaritan is. They understand the concept that somebody who's not obligated to help steps in and helps. And there's laws that protect good Samaritans who kind of step in and lend a hand even if it doesn't go very well. 
Well, that's the passage we're going to look at today. The, the, the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's found in Luke chapter 10. If you got a Bible with you, I invite you to find it. But I'm going to read it for you. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke is the third gospel, third book in the New Testament. And Jesus is responding to an inquiry. And it begins like this. It says, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. It says, one day an expert in religious law... Uh, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Elsewhere, other other translations just call him a lawyer, a man who understood, studied, you know, protected, promoted the law. Stood up and asked him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a road trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, verse 31, by chance, a priest came along, and when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, or a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? It's an obvious answer, right? You would just want to say, well, the Samaritan, the lawyer cannot bring himself to utter the word Samaritan because there's a lot of hatred towards Samaritans by the Jews. And he just says, verse 37, the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Uh, I took a I took a, a rabbit trail in the first service. I'm going to do it for you as well. Uh, out of this that has absolutely nothing to do with the message, but it's, I never get to address this in any other context. The man, the Samaritan who rescued the wounded traveler, took him to an inn. Where else in the Gospel of Luke do you hear about an inn? Anybody? The birth of Jesus. Okay, now I'm about to tell you something. I'm going to ruin your Christmas. I'm going to ruin your nativity set and everything else that you have that you love that's sentimental about, Chris, about Christmas. And it's fine. It's fine if you have an, a manger and, and all that. There's a Greek word that's used here. The Greek word is pentakeon. It's the only time in the New Testament we have that word. And it means lodging, public lodging, like an inn, hotel that we would call it, hospital, hospice, something like that. There's a word that's used when same author, Luke, when he talks about Jesus being born and said, and the time came for the child to be born and his mother wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. 
but it's a different word. The word is kataluma, which means something different. There's one other time that, that Luke uses the word kataluma in, and that's when he sends, when Jesus sends his disciples to go find a room for them to have their last supper, their, their Passover meal together before the crucifixion. And which we often call the upper room. It means a guest room, an upper room, spare room, a room in a house that's, that's not a public room, but a room, a private room in a house, what we would today call a guest room. Right? So, I'm so sorry to do that to your Christmas, but it does tell you, when you think about Jesus, he's in his parents' ancestral village, lots of guests are in the house, the guest room is already full, and so there in the public space of the house, Jesus is born, and he's laid in the feeding trough, which is inside the house, as the family's gathered around, and that's what happens when you start unpacking languages between words that aren't the same, and so, um, Merry Christmas. All right. All right. Let's get back to the story. That was sorted for you, Crystal. This whole thing about the Good Samaritan is usually considered a parable, a story that illustrates a point. It's usually, in fact, my Bible has the heading, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That said, it might be a true story. Because Jesus doesn't say, well, it is like a man who went on a journey. He doesn't say, the kingdom of God is like this. Jesus says there was a man, Jewish man, who went on a trip. And here's where he went. He went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's very specific with details. I, my personal conviction is that Jesus is recounting something, something from the news, some current event that had happened that perhaps others did or didn't know about. It could be something that happened but was suppressed as fake news because it was a Samaritan who did the good, good deed. That's entirely possible. But uh, that's my personal conviction, but it's okay if we also call it a parable. Typically, when you've heard this talked about, we've been told that the priest and the Levite or the temple assistant couldn't really stop because that would potentially make them ceremonially unclean. You know, a religious person would not be, for example, uh, able to touch a dead body because that would that would make them unclean and then they would have to spend time being sort of cleansed before they could go back and do their temple duties. Um, that's, it's possible that that's what was going on here. And the point is generally saying, Hey, even if, you know, everything says don't help, um, you need to sometimes, you know, break the rules to help. That's possible. But the language of this story is, is suggesting to us that they're actually traveling away from Jerusalem. Uh, they were going down from Jerusalem. When you're in Israel, everything, Jerusalem is always up. No matter where you go, even if you were on the top of a hill, you would say you would go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the, considered the high point. Everything is up to Jerusalem. And so that says they were down, going down the road. Uh, in that case, cleanliness wouldn't have been a real big concern because there's no deadline, there's no timeline for them. Another argument for that is to say if they were entering Jerusalem for a festival or an event, they would likely be traveling in a caravan of some kind. And it, we would, the indication is they're traveling alone. So um, it tells us that the people listening to Jesus' story could reasonably expect that the religious men should have and could have stopped and helped the traveler. 
it's within reason to say, well, those guys really could have stopped and helped. So it actually makes them even more villainous in my mind than, than we've been typically led to believe. Now, in reality, I think it's really simple. I think they were just scared. They were scared. It's a 17-mile journey from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. So let's say you walk at three miles an hour. What are we at? It's, it's, you know, it's a six-hour walk, a five- to six-hour walk. It's hot. It's dusty. It's dry. It's rugged terrain. And we're told that bandits take advantage of that road to attack people. And I don't know if you've ever ended up in a dangerous neighborhood but all you want to do when you get into a dangerous neighborhood is get out. Uh, 1992, a month before I, I got married, my, my best friend and I, in fact, my best man and I, we, we took a guy's trip to, to California. That were from where we lived, California was like, oh. So um, we came to California and somehow we ended up, this is a month after the Rodney King riots, and somehow we ended up in this burned out part of Los Angeles. And we were freaked out. We were a couple of scared kids. I mean, we did not know. There's no Google Maps to say, you know, Google, get me out of here. There's none of that, right? It's 1992. And uh, it was really, really scary. Um, so I get fear in a neighborhood. I understand that uh, it happens. And yet, here in Jesus' story, uh, the surprising hero, the, the hated Samaritan, the one that really should not be expected, like no Samaritan could possibly help because we hate Samaritans, right? He's the one who helps the wounded traveler, spending his own resources of medication, of finances, using his own donkey to load the man. He doesn't say, hey, you over there with the donkey, take this guy to the town. You know, he doesn't, he takes all the responsibility on himself, right? He he spends his own money and he, in the process, puts himself at grave danger and risk a risk of attack on that dangerous road. And I want to tell you that throughout history, don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise, but throughout history, it's been Christians who have stepped up in the times of crisis. It's Christians who, you know, it's, you know, it's Christians who, uh, you know, for example, have, have built hospitals or education in dangerous places. It's Christians who, you know, went and, and served lepers in, in leprous places. It's, Christians who helped in times of plagues and pandemics. Um, you know, this, some of these rescues that happened out of Afghanistan just in the last few weeks, private money, lots of Christians were involved in getting planes over there and getting people rescued out of the country. So Christians are, have a long, good tradition of stepping up in a dangerous, risky time and making a difference. It's awesome. Now, the story does a number of things. And so on a surface level, Jesus is teaching, right, that the person that you encounter is your neighbor, that you, you know, whoever they are, if they have a need, um, no matter, you know, if you know them or not, they are your neighbor. And therefore, your faith is evidenced, your faith is made known uh, by your willingness to help them. And we're taught that sincere love for neighbor is going to involve a personal investment. It's going to cost you something. As a less obvious lesson, but I think worth just briefly mentioning, is that we are pushed to examine our own attitudes about race and class. So, for example, you know, I tried to think of, you know, how I could tell the story and substitute, you know, somebody in place of the Samaritan, but you can think about it yourself. Like, 
If you were the wounded traveler, let me put it this way. If you were the wounded traveler, is there anyone that you would say, don't touch me based on their ethnicity, their class, their voting record, you know, their political stripe? Is there anyone that you would say, oh, I don't want you touching me? That would be an issue. And I, I really believe part of what Jesus is doing is pushing us to examine our own heart and our own attitudes to those who are not like you, regardless of where you stand on even some of the important issues I talked about at the beginning of the message. Even if we terribly disagree, can we love one another? That's the challenge of the gospel, right? Uh, so that's, you know, I think an important lesson, but kind of not the main thrust I want to talk about today. Where I want to go is to say, where do we, how do we unpack, you know, what are sort of the takeaways from, from this episode today? So loved, so, so familiar. First, and again, something we've talked about over and over this year is that salvation is not earned by rule keeping. Salvation is not earned by rule keeping. The lawyer who approaches Jesus clearly knew his religious business. He understood the law, the regulations. He apparently was pretty good at keeping them. And yet he was honest enough to acknowledge that something was missing. He was willing to say, I'm still not saved. I still don't have eternal life. And, and he's like a person, you know, and you've met them occasionally that, you know, they've been to church their whole life, but they've never come to know Jesus personally. They've never come to have that personal relationship with Christ. And so he was close, but he wasn't there. See, when you put your full faith and trust in Jesus and you're following him sincerely and you're baptized and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there is an inner witness. There's an inner testimony, an inner conviction or assurance of your salvation to say, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I know I'm saved. And you don't wonder, man, am I saved? Am I really going to make it to heaven? Because Jesus confirms that in you. You find yourself, listen, you will find yourself naturally doing the very things that Jesus is talking. You will naturally love your neighbor in the way that Jesus teaches. So that's an important uh, takeaway for us is that we're not saved by rule keeping. We're saved by our faith. And, And you internally know that to be true. The second takeaway comes out of verse 29. Verse 29 says this, the man wanted to justify his actions. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, whatever was going on in this man's life, whatever actions he was doing, he knew I am not loving my neighbor very well. And so to kind of get out of it, to find a technical detour around love your neighbor as yourself, he said, well, who's my neighbor? And I would say this in terms of a takeaway, we need to resist the urge to justify ourselves, resist the urge to justify ourselves. See, it's interesting to me. The man immediately, he didn't just say, okay, Jesus, good answer. I'll work on that. He's like, ah, something's going on in my own heart. His, he felt guilty about something. Jesus, Jesus didn't, you know, call him out on anything, but the man's own conscience did. He felt guilty about something. He understood the requirement of the law, but his heart was out of compliance with God's word. And he knew it. And so he's trying to justify his behavior. I I think he he knew the right answer. But if he can technically avoid loving his neighbor, then he's off the hook. Think about this in the life of the church. Sometimes we find ourselves saying, well, someone ought to do something about X, Y, Z problem. 
right? Or, you know, someone ought to give money to XYZ project. But that someone is me. That someone is you. If that's prompted in your conscience, if God's putting his finger on that in your own life, then don't make excuses. Take action. Do that. Because he wants to birth something good in you. I love it when someone says, hey, I have an idea. Wouldn't it be great if our church could do such and such? I'm like, yeah, that is a great idea. When do you want to get started? Oh, no, no, I, 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 not that, I'm not going to do that, but someone needs to. That someone is being prompted by God to do something. And, and you don't have to be an expert to do it. I, I shared in the first story, we've got a guy in our church who's really involved with the fabulous ministry called Mennonite Disaster Service. And he volunteered to just go swing a hammer for a few weeks. And he got there and they liked what he did. They said, you know, we want to make you a foreman. He's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have construction experience. I haven't run a crew before. That's not for me. And they're like, we see it in you. We want you to do it. And he's taking the challenge and he's learning and doing. He's been an amazing blessing to them because he's willing to say, okay, God, I guess this is on me. Right. So, you know, when God prompts you, you got to do it. Um. Now, the Good Samaritan story itself is really straightforward, isn't it? I mean, the, the religious guys who should have acted and had the means to do something about it didn't. And then the despised Samaritan who was not expected to act uh, because of the, you know, because he's Samaritan, right? He does act. And, and whatever the reasons were, the, the, the religious guys were clearly in the wrong and they're condemned for their behavior. And, and it's such, on a surface, it's a really obvious story. And Jesus has made the point, you know, your neighbor is anyone in need. Do what love would do in that situation. And this this obvious message in there about to love your neighbor is going to take risk. It's going to cost you something. It's going to take your time. It's not, you know, you don't get to delegate someone else's time and someone else's risk and someone else's expense to do that. It's on you. All those things are important. But I think it's really important. And here's where I want to kind of dwell a little bit. It's really important to go back to the man's question, which is in verse 25, because the story, the whole story is told in answer to a question. And the question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And to be perfectly honest, it's a bit of a confusing answer. It's a confusing answer because the whole of scripture is very clear about how you are saved. You're saved by faith alone. God's grace, your faith, that's what saves you. You go back to the Old Testament, Abraham, thousands of years before, we're told that he was credited, his righteousness was credited to him. He was considered justified before God by his faith, made right with God by faith. You read Hebrews 11, it's a whole list of Old Testament characters who by faith were made right with God, not by their actions. Then you go into the New Testament and we're taught again and again. Ephesians chapter 2 probably says it best. For it is by grace you have been saved, um, through faith and not by works, so none of us can boast about it. It's so clearly taught in Scripture. You are saved by God's grace through your faith and not by your effort, not by your works. But then Jesus answers this, conf- this question in a confusing way. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus seems to indicate that your actions here on earth have something to do with your salvation. Quite simply, and if you're taking notes, you can write it this way. Our actions on earth matter for eternity. 
Our actions on earth matter for eternity. Now, this is an amazing thing to me. Now, this gets back to our, where we started the message. You've got to help other hikers along the path, along the trail. Anyone can be nice. That's a given, right? You can be polite in a grocery store or a parking lot. You can be complimentary at work. You can be patient with a student, you teachers, whatever it is. That's basic human decency. That's I think we can expect that at a, at a basic level. But to love your neighbor, that costs you something. And it's not an everyday occurrence. It's not going to happen all the time. The Samaritan man, you know, didn't become the Jericho Road ambulance service and spend his days going back and forth with his donkey looking for people to pick up and drag to the hospital. It's, it's not what he did. It was a one-time event as far as we know. But listen, he helped because his heart was tuned in that direction. His heart was tuned for action. And that's why he helped. So while it was an unusual event, like, whoa, we've never seen this before, he knew what to do. Why? Because his heart was already prepared to help people in need. He was geared for that. And, and you know, most, how often, and listen, I, I've been guilty of this, I'm sure, but we've all had that sense of like, well, somebody will do something, right? I was reminded recently, I don't remember what the connection was, but I was reading some stuff and... Um, Oh yeah, I was in a book by Malcolm Gladwell in Tipping Point. He talks about this story. 1964, Kitty Genovese, uh, was one of the kind of a very famous story at the time. Um, in New York City, she was attacked on the street and, and beaten and eventually killed. Anybody remember the Kitty Genovese story, 1964? And what was remarkable about it was that 38 witnesses saw or heard the attack and no one called the cops. No one called the police. That time, and it really shook the nation at the time. It's like, well, how could this happen? And how come nobody did anything? Because what happens, what, what we've come to figure out is when, when a large group witnesses an event, now this is before cell phones, and so maybe it'd be different now, but when a large group uh, witnesses an event, most people think, well, someone must have done something already. Someone else called the police. Someone else reported. I don't want to get involved, and, and someone else will do it. And, and that's typically what happens. But the, by the way, they say, you know, they, the speculation is if only two or three witnesses had seen her, probably she would have she would have gotten help. But, uh, you know, we tend to think someone else will take care of this problem. But what if God's laying that problem on your heart? What if he's allowing you to witness something that needs to be changed or affected? And so Jesus ties this matter of loving our neighbor to our eternal salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the question. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, th- this is challenging. Some, okay, some of us remember international travel. You remember that? Um, you could go somewhere. And, uh, and when you did, you took U.S. dollars and you converted it to a local currency. You used, you know, the local ATM. You used, uh, uh, your credit card. You bought cash before you went. Or some of you are actually old enough to remember those amazing little things called traveler's checks. Traveler's checks was a, funny thing and you had to go find a bank somewhere that would cash your traveler's check but it was just a currency exchange system and in the same way jesus here is teaching us and elsewhere in the new testament as well that you can take your earthly resources and convert them exchange them into eternal currency right the currency of salvation through your effort through your deeds it's a it's a wild thought that you can put treasure in heaven by investing earthly treasure now. 
And if you're like me, you're just going to rebut and say, well, Brian, didn't you just, you just said that we're saved by grace alone through faith. How, how are you doing this? Isn't that salvation by works? And the answer is no. It's not salvation by works. It's the works of salvation. And there's a difference. Salvation comes first and then the deeds. So it's not salvation by works. It's the works of salvation. It's what you do because you are saved, not in order to be saved. And that's the big difference. It's that response of the heart. And I love it. You know, there's so many generous people in this church. I I just, you know, when we put a call for help on something, people just step up. Uh, last week, uh, Landu, um, I think you're here. We had you share a little bit about your project, the church building project in Congo. And I said, hey, if any of you feel prompted to be a part of that, just speak directly to her. You're not going to get a receipt. There's nothing I can do for you, but you can just give to her. A bunch of you gave money. And so this week she was able to send money and bought all the seating for the church. Like, that's awesome. I just love you when you do that. I mean, just an amazing thing. That's the fruit of your salvation. The the evidence of your salvation borne out in works as the Lord prompts you, not out of compulsion, but as the Lord prompts you. All right, the final question then that we just have to wrestle with is what am I supposed to do about all this? Because Jesus, I believe, is saying, be ready. The opportunities will come. And I think that's the thing. The answer is be ready. When those opportunities come, resist the urge to make excuses. You know, well, I can't help. You know, I don't have much money or I don't have much time or I don't have the expertise. Just be ready to help. And I'm going to invite the worship team, Jacob and team. Why don't you guys come forward, get ready to lead us in one last song. I remember years ago, and I think I've shared this with you before. I was just telling the Lord, God, I just we just don't have much. And I'm telling you, there was a long time when... We live like church mice. And Lord, if I had more, I could be generous. And this is one of those times when I just heard the Lord speak so clearly. If you're not generous now, you won't be generous when you have a lot. It's this this principle of if you can't be trusted with a little, you can't be trusted with much. That's the biblical principle. And it, it's it's in the heart And so you think, well, I don't have much. Okay, then do a little with the little that you have. If I won't get dirty or take risks or invest in small ways, I will never do it in the big ways when I have resources. I Trust me. But if I will do it with the little stuff, then I'll be able to love my neighbor in the simple ways, even in the way that I love myself. Faith with a little bit, faithful with much. Faithful with a little, entrusted with much. And so what you do today, what you do tomorrow, what you're going to do this week, it's going to matter for all eternity. Think about that for a moment. What you're going to do, that little word of encouragement, that phone call that you're going to make, that text message, that assistance. Maybe you're going to go to the grocery and you're going to feel compelled to buy that person's groceries because they suddenly look like they really need the help. Something's going to happen and you're just going to be obedient and God's going to say, well done. You're loving your neighbor as yourself. And and it's an eternal investment. And it'll happen this week. 
It's going to happen. I, 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 I really believe it. The opportunity to help someone or feed someone or listen to someone or pray with somebody or drive someone or, or pay for something for someone and it's going to put you at risk. It's going to cost you something. But I promise you it's going to be worth it because you're going to be loving your neighbor as yourself as an evidence of your salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this incredible, fabulous story that you gave to us. This 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 episode that teaches us about where to place our heart, not on the things of this earth, not on the things that accumulate for ourselves, not in the pride of life, but to put our heart in the things that matter for all eternity. God, we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to be the kind of church that it matters that we're here, that people would miss us if we're gone, that they would know that's a church that loves their neighbor. I don't agree with everything they say and do, but they love their neighbor. God, I want to be that kind of place. I think for the challenge. And God, I recognize the only way we can really love the people around us is to receive the love that you have for us, that you're pouring out into our lives. God, let us receive that love so that we can be a blessing to others. Thanks for listening. Know that God loves you more than you can imagine. And for everything Bethany Church, check out BethanyChurchFresno.com.